What is going on? It is the Ethos Clippers podcast. We are coming at you here on a Thursday evening. No Clippers basketball. Of course, the Clippers season has ended while we all sit here and root against the Los Angeles Lakers. But I promised you that we had a special guest (laughs) coming up, and that special guest has come through. He is one of the kindest individuals you will meet, one of the more talented individuals that you will meet. He graced us with his presence for nearly five years as the voice on the radio side of the Los Angeles Clippers. You see him, you hear him all over the place, and now he is headed to NBC, where you will hear him alongside Todd Blackledge and Catherine Tappan. They'll be calling NBC Sports' new Big Ten Saturday Night Football Package, Noah Eagle, back on the Ethos Clippers podcast. Noah, how are you, my friend? Brandon, what's going on, man? I'm, I'm doing great. I'm doing better now that I get to hear your voice and get to hear you just gas me up, which is all I want in life. If that, that could be my alarm when I wake up, I'd, I'd be a happy camper. We'll see if we can maybe organize that by the end of the show. We can do it. We can do it. I, I'm, I'll happily do it. I won't charge you. It, this isn't going to be one of those things where you got to pay me and uh, it's, it, that site. I will, though. Uh, well, I will, though. Listen, you pay me yeah, with you your want, friendship. If you're, you're saying you're opening a cameo. I'm down. There you go. I was going to say cameo is where it's at, but I can do this for free where I can be people's answering machines or their alarms. I can do this. We can make this work. No, you see, you see, man, you got to know your worth. I know your worth and your worth is more than free. Trust me. I appreciate you. So, of course, as you're listening to this, you hear Noah Eagle Uh, We were really lucky to have Noah for so many years as the voice of Los Angeles Clippers on the radio side. And before we even begin, it's funny because I remember when you um, joined the Clippers, Noah, and you told me the story about meeting Ballmer and how excited he was and how hardcore he wanted you to be. Um, And I was like, oh, man, this guy is great. He's bought in. And I remember talking to Brian Seaman, obviously the TV voice, and he was telling me, you know what, Noah's not going to be with us very long. I mean, this kid is super talented. I would not be surprised to see him go to bigger and better things um, in the near future. And Brian was very correct because you were going to NBC Saturday night where you're going to get the pleasure of calling Big Ten football, which will include my alma mater, USC. So I'm very excited to hear you on the call. How excited, first of all, before we get into any Clippers stuff, before we get into any career stuff, how excited are you to be joining NBC and especially be on that Big Ten package, which is now going to be a total powerhouse of a conference? Yeah, I mean, look, Brand, I think like anything else, it's bittersweet just because of everything that you just went through. I have been incredibly bought in and never will be bought out of Clippers organization. And I'm unbelievably thankful for the four years and four seasons I spent here and friendships and bonds with over these years. So I I will miss a lot of that, but to your point, uh, a lot to be excited about moving forward. And and this NBC journey just beginning now, uh, I think is going to be hopefully fruitful one and hopefully something that we'll all look back on and say that was the start of just another chapter of what is my hopefully long journey as well. So very, very much looking forward to it. You mentioned Todd and Catherine. We've got Matt Marvin, our producer, and Charlie Dammeyer, director. But really, our entire crew is filled with spectacular and talented people. And when I've got that around me, then I just have to be that true point guard that we've all been clamoring for and finally got at the end of this season. You know, somebody who can really put the ball in everyone's hand, everyone gets a touch. That's just my job. So I'm looking forward to, to filling that role and just being a star in that role and letting everything else take care of itself. 
hey, you know what? You can be that guy that can go and play 40 minutes. You can be that Russell Westbrook that can be the rebounder. You can be the scorer. You can do everything. And I got to say, for you to mention your producer and your director says a lot about you, of course, um, where some people just be like, yeah, man, I'm stoked. This is going to be great. I'm excited (laughs) to be the voice of Saturday Night Football on NBC. But for you to give credit to them, I mentioned in the beginning, but just shows you what the type of mensch that you are and the good fella that makes sure to give credit to everybody around you. So we're really excited to hear you. Um, it'll be great to hear you on the call for USC, but let's talk some Clippers basketball before we get into anything else. Um, it has been a up and down, um, several years for you as the voice of the Clippers. You've obviously seen the Kawhi and PG era, and you've seen the ups, you've seen the downs, you've seen the promise, the hope for an NBA title. You've seen the injuries, um, I'm curious now that this is your last, that this obviously was your last year to have it go like this, not ideal to say the least, but what's going to be your lasting memory of the PG Kawhi era, um, especially how it ended um, and your ending with the PG Kawhi era? Yeah, obviously there, there's hopefully still more basketball for those guys to play in Clippers uniforms. And if they are, if they are available and healthy, I still think they're as good as anybody in the NBA. And I think they proved that, you know, even without PG, you look at game one, Kawhi can take over any game on both ends of the floor. And when you put him out there with Russell Westbrook and all the energy and hustle he brought, despite going three for 19 from the floor and and winning the game, essentially defensively on Devin Booker, what, Norman Powell can bring off the bench, Terrence Mann and Avica Zubac. You know, I don't need to tell you guys exactly what this team is capable of at full strength, but I do think that there's a to be had and there's excitement that everybody should still feel, especially with Teron Lue on the sidelines. I just think that it's it's funny how quickly things and how people how quickly people can forget how I think people realize just how incredible of a head coach he is. And even last season when the team didn't have Kawhi the whole year and PG only played 31, I think you saw just how magical he can be in his adjustments, in his game plan, in his willingness to eat, breathe, live, sleep, whatever, basketball and more specifically Clippers basketball and finding wins to get to them to above 500 again at 42 wins was just sensational. And even this year with the cards that he was dealt, I really think he did a very good job. And I think that he's only going to come back hungrier next season as well. So as long as you've got him, as long as you've got Steve Ballmer, which, of course, they always will, Lawrence Frank in the front office, there's always going to be reason for excitement. I think in terms of how they'll be remembered, it's very similar and and similar story to many Clipper teams that we've seen over the years, uh, what could have been, at least to this point. But I will say this. When I first got out here, Jerry West told me that those two guys being the focal point of this team had at minimum, he said, minimum five-year window. So we've been through four. That means that at least one more year, he believes that this team is as good as any in the NBA. And and what he said was at the end of those five years, they do a reassessment period. And that lines up, if you look at contracts and, and extensions and everything like that, it does line up exactly to his vision. And so I'm curious for this final year of that five-year title window that he was looking at, what type of adjustments can they put around the 2-1-3 connection? Because I'm still a believer, just based on everything that I've seen over these four years, when those guys are in there together, the winning percentage is ridiculously high. Just this year alone, when they played, if they had played every game this year, 
based on their winning percentage in the games they did play together, they would have been the two seed in the Western Conference. And of course, that would have been crazy because the Lakers ended up getting the seventh seed and that could have changed a whole bunch of things across the NBA. But I do look at this team and, and I'd say, one, they'll be remembered for excitement and keeping you on your toes. Just think about all the comebacks that this team was able to to find over the course of these four years alone. They'll be remembered for bringing back a, a rivalry in L.A. that, when, at least when I first arrived, it didn't necessarily have that same juice before. And then LeBron and AD get to the Lakers. Of course, the 2-1-3 connection with the Clippers. And my first game as a regular season broadcaster in the NBA was that first battle for L.A. 2019-2020 season. And I'll never, ever forget the energy that that place was packed with. It's just the anticipation, the the willingness for both sides to really get juiced to that level, feeling like both teams could win a championship. And, you know, despite both teams going up and down over the course of four years, heading into every season, they both believed that that was the year they're going to win it. And there's something special about sharing a city and I know that there's frustrations with that, but there is something special about sharing a city in which both teams have multiple top-tier superstars. So those are some of the things I'll remember. And as I said earlier, I'll be very excited to follow along, and I'm never buying out. So you've got me for life. Hey, and we're happy to have you. One thing that you mentioned there that I found very interesting was the five-year window thing, and that will basically put the nail in anybody's thoughts of making a trade of PG or Kawhi to get rid of one of those guys. And it really doesn't make sense to do that unless you got something that can make you win right away. And I think the Clippers are just going to see how it goes and they're going to play it out. They're going to hope that Kawhi and PG can stay healthy because this thing only works if Kawhi and PG are healthy. I mean, you can only have one of those guys for so long. And we saw what PG was able to do, obviously, um, without Kawhi in the postseason, that he dragged the Clippers all the way towards that Western Conference Finals, but they couldn't get over the hump uh, a couple of years ago. But you need both those guys healthy, and so we'll see what happens. If they can stay healthy, if they can't, then you probably blow it up. But when you, when you don't have your draft picks for so many years, and you have two superstars that, frankly, it's very difficult to trade for one of those guys um, that isn't that superstar level. you got to figure it out. And so it makes a lot of sense that Jerry West said that. And we'll see how things go going forward. But I truly do believe that if those guys are healthy, then, sure, they can win a title. The issue is, is that neither can really stay on the floor for a long period of time. Um, but we'll see. It's 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 frustrating as somebody that's a fan. I'm curious as a broadcaster if that frustration carries over because as someone that I mean, you want the team to do well, and you were with the team for every single home and road game. Is frustration the right word to describe how you possibly feel watching a team that has so much promise, but seeing its superstars get hurt year after year? Yeah, I think there's certainly some frustration involved. You know, you've done enough games over the course of your career where you know you've got to be a professional at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And so if there is a, a semblance of frustration, it probably comes out pregame or whenever you hear about an injury or wherever you hear about certain updated news or updated injury reports. But then quickly, by the time tip-off comes or pregame starts, you've got to focus back in and recognize that even without any of their guys, they've got as good of a chance as anyone to win a game or multiple games. And I think we saw that in this year's playoff series, especially even though they lose in five, there was an argument that could have been made. They easily could have been up three, one. They easily could have won a series in five, even without their two guys, you know, Kawhi drags them in, in game one. Sure. But game three, 
the 46 free throw attempts for the Phoenix Suns, the 27 in the third quarter, you take even half of them away, not even, just a couple away. The Clippers were in that game regardless of that crazy free throw discrepancy. Game four, they were in it down the wire. Game five, they were in it down the wire. And they're doing that with Russell Westbrook, with Norman Powell, with Terrence Mann, with Avita Zubats. Go down the list. They, they had the depth. And so, sure, was I frustrated? Yeah, I think it's it's natural for anybody because, similar to the fans, we, are, we, we feel a personal connection to the team, and especially so – being around all those guys and getting to know them, you want to see them succeed because you see how hard work. And I got to see all last year, Kawhi rehabbing, 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 putting in just maximum effort every day to make sure that he was 100%, 150%, 200% healthy for this stretch run this season. And so to see the frustration from him, then it carries over to yourself. But I think that it just goes back to being a professional goes back to recognizing you've got a job to do just like these guys and making sure that you do it to the best of your ability, regardless of the circumstance. Yeah, no doubt about that. And you definitely did a great job. Um, I want to talk about a moment at the end of the season um, when you were gifted a jersey from Ty Lue. Curious what that meant to you and how surprised you were for that to happen. It meant the world. It meant the world. You know, when I first got here, Doc was still – the head coach, his final year with the team. So I got to know T. Lewis, an assistant at first. And I only talked to him here and there whenever it just lined up. And a lot of times it was because Chauncey Billups was nearby who was doing broadcasting with us at the time. So I developed a relationship with him. And he Lou, obviously very close, pretty much best friends from high school all the way until now. And so I got to know him a little bit as a result then. And then when he became the head coach the following year, I wasn't traveling. I wasn't really allowed near the team because of the COVID protocols and circumstances. And so, you know, we formed a relationship over the phone (laughs) because we were talking before every game over the phone. But it wasn't really until last season that I got to be around him all the time. I really got to study and and see what he was like on a day-to-day basis. Got to see just how hard he truly works, which is – I don't think people recognize or realize it. And how could they? Because he's a pretty private person. The dude is, it's a different level of grind from him. So I I think there was a mutual appreciation, at least from the two of us, just recognizing that both of us were putting maximum effort into what we contributed to the team. Now, his was a lot more uh, court and and play-based, you know, than mine. Mine is just making sure that everybody has the proper information and is entertained in the process and doing as as good a job as I possibly can. But putting in that extra before the game to, to do the preparation, making sure I'm asking poignant questions to him. So I do think there was some some form of a mutual admiration there, and I've got nothing but a ton of respect for him. But, yeah, it meant, it meant a ton. Uh, was I surprised? Absolutely. I, I think it's a huge tip of the cap to the organization, and it's another just bit of proof of just how first-class the nation is, how well-run they are. And to have that come from somebody that I truly admire was was really cool. So a bittersweet moment again, because it did help to almost catapult my mind to realize, oh, this this is actually happening. Like this ending is really is really occurring. And I'm not good about endings as is. And so when I have stuff like that happen, I think I already then take two steps ahead of, uh, of myself. I don't actually let myself stay in the moment because I, I just am naturally uncomfortable with it. But it was awesome that he did it. I'll never forget it. I'll make sure to frame the jersey and, and put it up wherever I live for the rest of my life. 
I was going to ask you what you're going to do with the jersey, whether you're going to put it in your closet and hang, have it hang there or you're going to frame it. So you answered my question there. You're going to have it framed. To, are you going to have anybody sign it or is it just going to be just the jersey? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I think for now, at least, I'll just I'll just frame it up. And then if the, the moment presents itself and it makes sense, maybe one day I'll have someone sign it. But definitely at minimum, I'm going to have that thing framed up and on the wall just just to remind myself of the four years and, and all the great memories that came with it. How wild is it that one of the four years that you were broadcasting for the team was the COVID year? I mean, it really takes away basically one of the years that you did with the team. But that's certainly something that I mean, people talk about memories and certain circumstances that stand out. I assume as someone that's such a young broadcaster, I mean, you were you were 23 at the time, weren't you? Um, that you went mm-hmm. during the COVID year. I mean, what are you going to remember about that season in particular? <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was all bizarre, Brandon, because I moved out to LA. I had been here before just on, on trips or whatever, but I'd never been here an extended, extended period of time. So I move out here alone in September of 2019. And I had a couple weeks just to get my stuff in here and make sure I had the right furniture and everything. And then we left for training camp. And once you leave for training camp, you're off and running. And then the season starts and you're really off and running and you've got minimal time. And so I really didn't have much time to even explore the area or anything because I went from September until March when COVID hit and then everything was shut down. And so I I flew back to New Jersey where I'm from, was back with my my parent for about three months and then flew back out to L.A. in June of 2020. Tennis was starting back up again, so I got to get back in the in the mode there, and then eventually the bubble. And the bubble was a fascinating experience for me. I didn't get to go. I did everything remote from basically a closet-sized studio in downtown L.A. I had two computer-sized monitors there, and that's that was what I had to go off of. And so if they cut away from that at, at all, which happened plenty of times during action, I have no idea where the ball is, and I'm doing a call for radio for people who have no idea where the ball is. So I, it was a learning experience. I think it it helped me improve immen- it, it helped me improve, I should say, immensely as a broadcaster because I had to know how to bring my own energy. I'm not feeding off of any crowd or anything like that. And that continued all the way through of course the following season where I'm going to the home games. We were allowed to go to the home games. We couldn't go down and hang out with all the people that I normally would. Chauncey at that point was now an assistant coach. I could barely see him, which was bizarre. So it was it was just odd. It was different. So we couldn't go down to the court or anything like that. Then I couldn't travel at all during the regular season. The best part about all of it was that I, I felt like I went through this this tumultuous journey. And then eventually we get to the playoffs. And after we win round one, the craziest thing was this. The Clippers go down 0-2 to the Mavericks in round one. They, they win those next two games, of course. They're down 30-11, to 11, win that game, win game four on the road. So it's 2-2. When it was 2-2 in that first-round series, I was told, hey, if they win, you're allowed to go start traveling again for round two and beyond. And I'm like, well, then they better win because I've been waiting all season for this, and I've been going by myself and doing games by myself in a closet-sized studio eating Jimmy John's or Jersey Mike's. Like, I'm, I'm ready. <laughs> this is the moment I've been waiting for since I first got here, essentially. And sure enough, they go down 3-2, and I'm like, come on, man. Of course. you, you got to be kidding me right now. I'm, I'm just saying this is just my luck, all this. 
And then Kawhi puts together just one of the most impressive performances of all time in Game 6 to will them to victory. They win Game 7, and the day after Game 7, I'm on a flight to Utah. I had to go commercial. I couldn't go with the team still, but I got to stay in the same hotel and still call the games in person. And that was true from Round 2 and the Conference Finals, which that was a unique setup as well. Just because of COVID, we were put in a suite, a luxury suite, and I was separated by a, a makeshift plexiglass from the ESPN radio broadcast, Mark Jones and Doris Burke are calling the game literally three feet away from me. And if you go back and listen, you can probably hear Jonesy at times saying, got it, or whatever he was saying at the time. You know, the DeAndre Ayton Valley Oop, you absolutely can hear me on his and him on mine. It's just how it worked out. So it's an experience that I'll never have again. And none of us hopefully will ever have again, but something I'm thankful for because I, I really do believe it helped me improve as a broadcaster and as a person. Wow, that's wild. I didn't realize that about the broadcast setup, that you guys were so close together. Uh, I, you would think that they wouldn't have done that knowing that that was going to be the case where you guys were going to be on each other's broadcast. You were so close, but for you to make it work, that's yeah. crazy. It was funny, though. It was bizarre, but I, I every time I talked to T. Lou, I would talk to him in the mornings before the games for the playoffs and a similar again we couldn't do it in person so we would just you know they would call me on my phone i would record it and, and we'd go from there but every time i kind of had a sem of when we were going to win just based on his his vibe i don't know what it was i could just feel it so sure enough every time i'd show up i told mark and doris this and they'd say how are you feeling about today and i'd tell them and i was right every single time until game six I don't know what it was, but I was right every single time until game six. I thought for sure that team was going to force game seven and, and put all the pressure on Phoenix. But uh, they were they were thoroughly impressed. They really were. They looked at me every time after the game. They're like, I don't know how you're doing it. I'm like, I don't know. Just just give me my credit for being a psychic. That's all it is. Hey, you know what? If you got another profession, it can certainly be a psychic. And before we even go further, <laughs> yeah. before we go further, I was going to leave this to the end, but I'm going to bring it up now. Um, I, I don't know if you looked at your own Wikipedia page, but we know that you uh, wanted to be a play-by-play broadcaster. But apparently, growing up, you considered working as a television dentist in a role similar to <laughs> Dr. Oz or Dr. Phil. Is this true? It is. It is true. Yeah. I, I don't know what it was. I don't know where I came up with it because that didn't exist. But most kids would say right off the top of their head when they were asked what they wanted to do that they wanted to be – some sort of astronaut or cowboy or something creative, let's say. I just went overly creative, apparently. <laughs> I, I didn't even bat an eye. I didn't even blink, I don't think. I looked people, I looked grown adults in the eye and just said, I want to be a TV dentist. And they would all go, oh, what is that? And I go, you know. <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> there was no, they didn't know, and nor did, nor did I, but... I don't know. I, I realized pretty quickly, Brandon, that nobody wants to sit at home on a Wednesday at 3 p.m. and watch a molar get filled. So I think I gave that dream up uh, pretty quickly. Coming up at four on CBS, Dr. Noah <laughs> does a root canal. See if the patient uh, will cry. Coming up on NBC. <laughs> Dr. Eagle's in the house. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I'd be down for it still. If I could, if I could learn the trade, I'd be in. Listen, if this whole broadcasting thing, you know, somehow doesn't work out, which is it's it's, it's already working out. So this is not going to happen. Then you've got that side gig. So you've got your retirement plan. So later on, when you're Dr. Phil's age, you've got your retirement plan just in case. It's just so you know. I'm down. I'm down. As long as I don't have to say 
it's not you. You're not a monster. You're not a monster. As long as I don't have to do that, I'm good. Oh, man. Yeah, I didn't expect this podcast to go this way, but here we are. Um, let's go back to basketball. I- I'm curious. Um, this is going to be a looking back type of pod. Um, and in terms of what you remember most, what game will you remember most from your time with the Clippers in your four years? Well, the easy answer there is game six against Utah, the 25-point comeback, the Terrence Mann 39-point explosion. That's always going to be at the top of the list, and for obvious reasons. First ever conference final berth. It was the first game since before COVID that full fan attendance was allowed. And I spoke to a lot of people in the building that night. My engineer, big brother Jake Warner, both of our ushers in our section, Vince and Robin, and a number of others who were there for Kobe's final game and they said that that game game six against utah was the, the loudest since kobe's game that that building had gotten in their time and they work pretty much every game in that building both hockey basketball concerts they said that game was the loudest since kobe's final game at staples center so that was really cool to be a part of and to be there and, and to see you know my guys at the utah jazz we, we got we got david Locke and boone I love those guys. They were high-fiving at halftime. They thought, for sure, we're going back to Game 7 in Utah. And I felt for them afterward. I saw them, and they were definitely uh, discouraged, to say the least. Rightfully so. I get it. But it, it was it was just an awesome environment to be a part of. And I'll never forget that one. I would say the 35-point comeback is certainly high on the list in D.C. Luke Kennard, four-point play to win it. That one was – it was crazy. I, I was not 100% feeling great. It was one of the, I think I just had a cold. We were getting tested, so I didn't have COVID. I knew that. But I think I just had a head cold of some sort. And so I was worried about my voice going in. And I listened back, and I sound I sound fine. And I'm th- so thankful that I do, because that tape is obviously golden. And it's something that will be played on forever, and it's something that I'll have forever. And the second largest comeback in NBA history isn't too shabby. And to do it without either of the two, one, three guys was pretty special. So another one there. And then all those, all the Lakers Clippers games that I got to call in person, especially, you know, the one in, in the bubble, I didn't get a chance to do. So of of my in-person games, I'm trying to think now they played. So in my four years, they played what 15 times and they went 13 and two mm-hmm. in my 15 games. And one of those two losses was in the bubble. So they went 13 and one in person when I got to call the 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 battle for L.A. So I would say all of those were great. And especially the Reggie Jackson game winner, the first game I got to call regular season. Kawhi goes for 30 in his Clipper debut and says, hey, 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 in the beginning. I, I, there are so many that I could choose from, but those are the ones that certainly stand out the most. You just made me think of something um, with all of these obviously great calls. When you're putting together a demo reel to put together for a network such as NBC. Is it something that you're doing or is that something that your agency is doing? And are you giving any sort of advice to them in terms of what you want them to use if it is them that's doing it? Yeah, no, at this point, Brandon, I would say that I haven't really made a demo in a while. I think that I think that most of my stuff just comes from games that somebody might hear or see but yeah my my agency definitely will put stuff together for me and then send it over to me as long as i get their or as they get my approval then they're cool with it but they they have stuff for me on tap and i appreciate it because back when i was making reels i'm a perfectionist i'm sure you're the same way mm-hmm. 
if one little thing was off, I'd felt I would feel like I had to start it all over again, and it would take me days. It when it should have taken me hours. It's similar to to my preparation and kind of how I approach the craft overall, where I'm never I'm never fully satisfied, never feel like I'm fully done. And so when I'm getting ready for a game, there's a moment where you're like, all right, I think I'm good, and then I go, oh wait a second, I I need something else. I need that too. Mm-hmm. So it's probably a good thing for my mental health and for my time that I'm not constantly creating reels. It would probably be a problem for everybody around me. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, let's go back to favorite stuff. Uh, favorite arena to call a game in? Outside of, of downtown Los Angeles. Correct. You're saying. Yeah, correct. Well, soon to be into a dome, hopefully. Yes. One day I'd like to, I'd still like to call a game in some capacity, whatever it might be. And hopefully one day that's doing it for a national stage but until then I'm, I'm looking forward to at minimum just getting in there because uh, i've just been so excited about it as everybody has and rightfully so but i would say toronto is probably high on the list i just think that the energy in there is really really impressive those fans always come out and support you know it's an entire country so you feel that when you're in there and we get to sit down on the court there which is not that's a rarity in radio now in the nba they're only a couple places there's three actually there were four when i first got there phoenix has now moved us back both detroit and chicago are the three that i still get to, to be on the floor and chicago is high on my list as well and then both my new york places which is really just because i grew up there you know i grew up going to both msg and then barclays center when it got put up and so it, it feels like home and it, and the cool thing I'll, I'll give you cool things for both of them one for barclays center the first time I ever put on a headset and tried to call a game, I went one year with my dad to a, a preseason Brooklyn Nets game. I think they were playing the Sixers. And the reason I say that is I believe Norvell Pell was in the game maybe or something like that. One of those, it was it was during the, the process, I want to say, when the Sixers were really tanking. And so that was towards the end of my high school tenure. I really had never called a game before. I never called a basketball game before. And so I, I just showed up to the game. And my dad would give me a credential and just say, hey, I just find a place to sit and hang out. And so I'd go up a lot of times and, and see if the radio guys had an open seat. And Chris Carino and Tim Capstra, two of the best in the business, they're like, hey, you want to come sit with us? I said, yeah, of course. So it's it's very similar if you've seen where me and, and Brian and all of the broadcasters sit at Crypto, similar location at Barclays Center. So I'm sitting there, and I think the third quarter – Chris Carino, because that they weren't doing it on the air. It was just them literally doing it to just get their reps in. It wasn't going out anywhere. So Chris turns to me and said, do you want to call a little bit of the quarter? I was like, sure. Hmm. And so that was the first time I ever put on a headset and call of the game was sitting there in that spot. So it's obviously going to then be special with a full circle moment going back there and feeling like I'm in the same exact spot. And I got to call the last two years at Barclays Center. I, the craziest thing was... The first two years I did the job, I didn't get to go to Barclays Center because COVID hit before we went my first year, and then we didn't travel my second year. So the last two years were the first times I actually called the games there, and we won both games. The, the Last year it was the the big comeback with Kevin Durant and James Harden playing for the Nets and the Clippers having all the COVID issues, and Wenyan Gabriel showing up and basically helping them win a game, and same with James Ennis, and I think Xavier Moon might have been on the team at that point too, but really fun game and then this year you know the nets had a ton of injuries the clippers find a way through it to finish out a long road trip so those are always cool and then the cool part for msg the the radio booth there's way up but it is it is named the marty glickman broadcast booth and marty glickman for those who don't know was a legendary broadcaster olympics a lot of things there 
but a legendary broadcaster first and foremost who went to Syracuse and was the first guy to go to Syracuse, the first guy to go to through the Syracuse broadcasting program. He was the domino, essentially, that set off the rest of them. So Marv Albert went to Syracuse because of Marty Glickman. Mm. And then Bob Costas went to Syracuse because of Marv Albert. And then Sean McDonough went to Syracuse because of Bob Costas. And it was all because of Marty Glickman, who would then go on to mentor all those names. He mentored my father, mentored a lot of young broadcasters over the course of his his incredible life. So to be there and see his name, that it, it does provide a little extra significance for me. So those are my answers. I got to go to Toronto, Chicago, and both New Yorks. You must be excited to uh, reunite in the Syracuse roots with Mike Tirico, huh? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Listen, the crazy thing about Mike Tirico, so he's been nothing but spectacular to me my entire life. And I've known him since I was a baby because my dad was two years younger than Mike at Syracuse. So they were at school together. And Mike started working professionally in Syracuse at the local TV station when he was a junior. So my dad shows up his freshman year and he was at a high school football game working for the student radio station. And Mike Tirico is there on the field doing a report. And so my dad's friend was with him and he goes, we should go say hi to him. And my dad's like, no, nah, he's not going to want to talk to us. And the, my dad's friend goes, he'd love to talk to us. And so they go down and they introduce themselves and. Mike says, oh, where are you guys from? And my dad says, I'm from Queens. He goes, I'm from Queens. And they hit it off, and my dad ended up interning for Mike for the two years they were there together. And then Mike, of course, goes off and does great things, but they have a very close relationship as a result, and therefore, same with me. And Mike will almost, anytime he's watching something I do, always is the first person to text me, tweet at me, whatever it might be. And so to be around him that much more, I think he's the most talented and versatile broadcaster maybe in our entire business. The fact that he can go and call Sunday Night Football and then turn around and host the Kentucky Derby coverage and do them at equally elite levels, that's special. That's something that's almost unheard of. That is a jack-of-all-trades, but being at the top of the entire field in every category, that's hard to do. So to be able to just be around him and learn from him even more is going to be – it's really awesome. I'm looking forward to it. That's awesome. Um, who was your favorite player to call and who is your favorite player to interact with? Those are tough questions. I, I'd say it's hard to pick just one of, of who was my favorite to call. I loved calling Kawhi's games because he's so surgical and because he gives you chances to really set up the calls from a, a broadcaster's perspective. Not many of them are all that sneaky. You know what I mean? You know exactly what's coming. He's going to set you up. He's going to then drive hard. And even when he dunks, he kind of showcases ahead of time that he's going for it. So he had a couple of those big posters those were some favorite calls that I had. I like calling the shooters, so Luke Kennard and, and Landry Shaman and those guys for sure. I love Norman Powell. I love Terrence Mann, all the guys that hustle. But one of my top guys uh, in both these categories has to be Avita Zubats, the guy who just pours his heart and soul into every single minute he's on the floor, in practice, in games, anything that he might do. So uh, he's great. Paul George, the highlights. I don't think I could just pick one player. I, I was so lucky over the course of my four years. If you think about some of the all-time greats I got to call with Kawhi and Paul George, but then Russell Westbrook was so much fun having him around. John Wall was someone that – that was my childhood, essentially, or really middle school into high school was when he blew up and became a, a massive deal, and so interacting with him was great. Uh, in terms of the guys who I really enjoyed interacting with, again, I think that – the the really cool part for me was that over the course of my four years, we, we had really good groups. And so I loved Reggie as everybody did. 
Reggie was just great to everybody. Always showed up with a smile. Always daps everybody up. Rocco, awesome, awesome dude. Uh, same with Nick Batum. Same with Zoo, Terrence. But again, I think I could go through basically every player that we've had in my four years going all the way back. Actually, one of my favorites and one of the favorites from everybody around the league is Rodney Magruder. He's like the nicest guy in the world. And so I, I just think you go deep into the rosters and recognize that they put together a group of just good guys, which which really does mean a lot. Yeah, team chemistry obviously is important. And you look back at those uh, Blake, CP, DJ, JJ Redick years, and there was uh, some bad chemistry there. Um, but it does seem like this team got along well, and it, it surely showed on the court and from what you're saying, it, off the court as well. So that, that's definitely positive the way this team continues to build. Um, some good names. Roddy Magruder, didn't expect to hear his name on this podcast either. Uh, Shout out Rod. Yeah, there you go. Um, Shout out Rod if you're listening. <laughs> hey, listen, Rodney Magruder, if you're listening, hit, hit me up. I'd love to have you on this Ethos Clippers <laughs> podcast. It'd be, it'd be fun to have you on for sure. Any any former players or any current players, I'm happy to have you on. Um, I want to transition a little bit to the broadcasting side for a couple of minutes before I let you go. You obviously were calling college football and college basketball this year while also doing the Clippers. And this is obviously part of the reason why you're leaving the Clippers is that you're going to NBC full-time. And with this Saturday night package, is just too much for you to leave the team and be as gone for as long as you'd have to be gone. Um, but I want to know how difficult it was going from college football or college basketball to NBA and right back to the other sport in terms of the preparation because you obviously have mentioned earlier in the podcast how important preparation is and how you never feel like you're done. But I know how much it takes to prepare for a game and then even for one that's going to be nationally televised, even more so. Um, curious what that was like for you going back and forth in terms of prep and how much of a life, frankly, that you had. Because I'm assuming that your <laughs> career basically took up a lot of it. Yeah, I, I, I so to give you a frame of reference on that one, I took my first personal vacation during All Star Break this year. For the, it was the first time in five years that I actually took a a real vacation for myself. I've just I, I really I did feel strongly that I wanted to just kind of grind. I and I I'm not complaining about it. You know what I mean? I'm just it's really just a fact that I wanted to put my head down and do the work and put myself in a good position to set myself up moving forward and felt like I did. Now, to your point, it wasn't simple. And the saving grace for me is that I got to watch my dad do it my entire life. You know, he's been doing the the juggling act, the balancing act of NFL, college basketball and, and NBA really since almost since I was born for the vast majority of my life, let's call it. And it can be a challenge. It can be tiring. It can be daunting. I think that what I learned from him is that time management is critical and you've got to know just how much time you can allot to each thing, especially when you might have a week where you have four or five, even six games. And there were a couple times this year where, you know, I think it was a probably about a 10 week stretch where I was doing college football, some college basketball, then the, the Clippers. And then when college football ended, I ended up having back to back weeks of NFL, where I did the Vikings and Colts, and then I did the Nickelodeon game the following week on Christmas. And so to give you some perspective on just what that might look like, let's just take that final football game I did, which was the Rams and the Broncos on Christmas Day. And I did that game. I took a red eye after that game on Christmas night to Detroit because the Clippers were playing the Pistons the following day 
on the 26th in Detroit. So I take the red eye. I landed about five in the morning, Eastern time or central time, whatever they're in. And I drive our hotel in Detroit is outside the city. It's about 45 minutes. So I take an Uber 45 minutes to the hotel, try to get a couple hours of sleep, wake up and go print the charts that I had done for that game, get those printed, finish out, try to maybe get a workout in to energize myself and then get on the bus to go to the game. We go to the game. Of course, that game happens to go into overtime because of the crazy comeback from the Stay Ready crew. Another one of those that was a really fun game to call, and I'm glad that I I got there in time for it. And then we turn around, and if you remember, it was a back-to-back Detroit-Toronto. And our plane, the Clippers plane, for whatever reason on that trip, there were, and really across the NBA this year, just some plane issues. Mm -hmm. And so our plane got there, and there was a mechanical problem. And so we waited on the bus. Second plane gets there, mechanical problem. Third plane gets there, mechanical problem. Finally, the fourth plane is the one that's good to go. It's not a normal plane that we would take, so we, we eventually board. But we don't get on that until well after midnight, probably actually around 1.30. We don't get to the hotel in Toronto and because of going through customs and whatnot, in which I basically had to talk Mike Fratello into the country because they didn't want to let him in because he had five suitcases. Oh, my he, God. He travels. He travels heavy. Now, I will say he uses all of them. I'm not going to get on him for it. He does use every bag, but they were very, uh, let's call it curious as to why he had so many. And he's trying to explain that he's on TV and he's trying to explain that he needs multiple suits. They, they weren't they weren't for it at first, but I think I helped him through. We finally get to the hotel at 4 a.m. that day and wake up, turn around, play the game. And I remember seeing Luke Kennard that next day afternoon probably whenever i woke up (laughs) i went to go get some food in the meal room they had set up and i saw luke and i was like have you ever had anything like this happen to you before and he said yes once he was when he was in detroit they were scheduled to go to miami but there was some snowstorm from wherever they were coming from and they couldn't get out for hours and they didn't land in miami or get there until five or six in the morning and they turned around and they won that game and sure enough the clippers this year turn around and win that game in Toronto, a big win at the time to really help them in the standing. So that was a, it was just a crazy 72 hours where I went from calling an NFL game, taking a red eye, waking up, calling an overtime game, taking essentially another red eye, waking up and calling another game. And then I think we had maybe one day off and then we were in Boston, I want to say, or wherever we were after that. Uh, but it was a lot of weeks like that. I, I almost missed the Avica Zubats 31-29 game this year because I had a game in Penn State the day before. And if you've ever been to Penn State or around, you know it's not easy to get in and out of. And sure enough, there was one flight out after the game going to Chicago in which I could connect in Chicago to L.A. and get back to L.A. in the wee hours of the morning. And I, I barely made that flight. I barely made it. Thank God I did, because if I had missed that game, as much as I love Avita Zubats, I don't know if I would have forgiven myself ever. So I'm glad I was there. Wow, that's so wild. And so I imagine that doing prep is difficult because you're probably doing it a couple days in advance, I'm assuming, for some of these games, since you know you're going to be traveling so much and trying to get sleep a little bit when you're on the flights and then going game after game after game. I'm assuming the prep is difficult. Yeah, I think the one thing that I did really well this year that I was happy I did was I knew going into the season that it was going to be difficult when the overlap came, when the Clippers got going and really we were, we were off and rolling and there was no turning back. So 
early, I would say really before college football got super busy, I tried to just knock out as many of my charts for the NBA teams as possible. So I finished my Clipper one early. Then I went through our schedule and I just started going one by one. Mm. Okay, who do we play first in the in the preseason? We got Minnesota and we got Denver and we got Portland. Let me get those done. And I said, oh, we got the Lakers. We got the Kings. Let me get those done. So I, I just did it so far ahead of time that all I really had to do by the time I got there was update stats, update a couple of notes. So it really only took me an extra maybe hour ahead of time that even sometimes I could do day of game. If we if we had a night game, I could wake up, finish up, print my stuff out, and still feel like I had enough time on the back end. So uh, that was the best thing I did for myself was really just get ahead. And that's, that's what you have to do. If you're going to really dip your toes in all these other areas and waters, especially considering I, I feel confident in my knowledge in the NBA and being around it and seeing all the teams and watching as much as I do, and certainly my knowledge of the Clippers and getting to talk to the coaches and the players – that helps immensely versus college football. I don't live in that world to the same degree, or at least I didn't in the past. College basketball, same deal. When I'm doing NBA, it's impossible to live in that same world at the same time. So those were actually more difficult in terms of the preparation. I really had to start from scratch. Damn, that's awesome to hear. It's cool to uh, to get an insight into that experience. Because obviously, I know I do boards, but I'm not doing stuff in different sports as often like you are. And so it's fun to listen to how you prepare for that because it's not easy and you're, you're going to be doing even more. NBC will hear you obviously Saturday night. We'll watch you on NBC doing that big 10 package, but also you're all over the tennis channel. And of course we'll see you different sports that NBC has, whether it's a uh, Sunday night football, we may see you. I'm sure we'll see you at some point. Um, at all different sports. And of course, NBC always has the Olympics. And we know that if we if we see the Olympics, we know that Noah Eagle has that three-on-three basketball locked in. <laughs> he is ready to go with a three-on-three. Myself and, and former Clipper host, Kyle Montgomery, uh, the three-on-three dream team, as they called us, around the Stanford offices. Are you ready for the weather, by the way? I'm, I am. I am. You know what? I, I Here's what happened, all right? When I first got out here, I, I think I may have told you this story, maybe not. But when I first got out here, the one of the first people I actually met up with was Brian Seaman. We got lunch together in Manhattan Beach, and towards the, you know we're having a good meal, everything. Although we went to a pancake house and he ordered a salad, which I still I still am perplexed <laughs> by, and I think he's perplexed by it. Even in the moment, he's like, I don't know why I got this. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know. It's the first time I'm meeting you. It was a weird weird choice. What a weirdo. But, he, no, but you know what? He powered through, and, and by the end of the meal, I said, oh, we're going to get along just fine, and sure enough, we did, but I remember towards the end, and we had a great conversation back and forth, and he goes, by the way, I'm like, yeah, he goes, I'm from Iowa, I lived in both Denver and Minneapolis, I was like, okay, and he goes, you think you're going to get through the weather, aren't you? You think you're going to be fine regardless, despite living out here? I go, of course, I just did four years in frozen tundra of Syracuse, where it's negative 10 almost every day and snows literally every day from November 1st to May 1st. And he goes, yeah, yeah, get that out of your head. I'm like, what? And he used, let, let's say he used some choice language, <laughs> but he, he essentially called me or said I was going to be soft. Yeah. He said, I'm going to be soft. You're going to be soft. It just is how it is. You get out here, you get used to it, and you're going to get soft. I'm good. He goes, give it till February. So February rolls around. I'm still good. But when COVID hit and then I got out here for an extended period of time, the bubble, when, when the Clippers were eliminated from the bubble, I went to Paris for the French Open for, for tennis. And I get there and the first day 
it's 55 degrees and I walk outside and I immediately go, nope, need more layers. <laughs> and I realize in the moment, oh, I'm sure I'm an ultra soft. Like it's a different level here. Now, do I think I can adjust back? Absolutely. I've done it before. I'll do it again. But it, it's going to take a little bit of a, a grace period, let's call it. Yeah, Stanford, Connecticut is not the warmest place in the world. So it'll definitely take some getting used to. And you'll be going to some cold places. Talk about Michigan, oh, yeah. Ohio, Iowa. I mean, the Big Ten is, is not kind. When you have to come out to USC, you'll gladly take that one. USC oh, yeah, and UCLA, you'll be looking forward to uh, on that Saturday night NBC schedule. Noah? It's been a pleasure, man. I, I appreciate you more than you can imagine. Um, I remember when you got the job, I reached out to you very early on, and you responded right away. You said, just let me get settled. I'll be happy to come on. And man, it was word. You you came on a couple weeks later. I've had you on a couple times since. So it's been a pleasure, and we were very lucky to have you. Um, as the radio voice for four years, you were succeeding somebody in Brian Seaman who was phenomenal. And you took that torch and you carried it further and you were awesome. So we're, we're very blessed as Clippers fans to have you and Brian. And it's been awesome. And we wish you all the success from all Clipper Nation. We wish you all the success at NBC. It's been a very fun four years. So congratulations to you and thank you. Brandon, it, your words really do mean more than you'll ever know. And I appreciate everything that you've done both for the Clippers and, and overall in life and for me and, and making me feel welcome and comfortable when I first got out here. And as I've said a couple times, I'll always be there. Clipper Nation, I'm never just leaving you. The, the love and support that you have shown me in four years is truly, truly immensely appreciated and it will never go unnoticed for me. So you've got me, as mentioned, for life and I'll be I'll be watching from afar, but not that far. Far. I'm, I'm excited to see what, what goes on with this organization these next couple of years, and I'll be following along with all of you. So appreciate it, man. Thank you. Of course, and we'll be following you. That's Noah Eagle, the voice of the Los Angeles Clippers, headed to NBC. You'll see him Saturday night doing that Big Ten package on NBC. That'll do it for this podcast. We'll probably be back in a week or two. I know that Matt is currently around London or something. He, he's on his honeymoon, so we'll get him back at some point to join the pod. But I hope you enjoyed this one with Noah. Of course, you can rate and review the podcast. You can follow us at Ethos Clippers. Follow Noah on Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter at BD Marcus. Give us that five-star rating on iTunes. Review the podcast. It surely does help. So until next time, he's Noah. I'm Brandon, and go Clips.